Welcome to 10 Blocks, the podcast of City Journal. This is Seth Barron, your host for today. I'm the associate editor at City Journal. Joining me is Rafael Mengual. He's a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, a contributing editor to City Journal, and he writes widely on criminology and the police. Ralph, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me back. So things have really been pretty uh, crazy in New York City the last few weeks. The last month has seen constant protests, violence associated with the uh, the George Floyd protests. But independently of that, there's been a major uptick in in violent crime, particularly shootings and homicides. Do you have the numbers on those? Well, uh, so far, as of June 28th, uh, shootings or homicides in the city are up uh, 23%. Shootings are up, uh, I think, a little more than that. Uh, If I remember correctly, it's about 28%. Um, But of course, this is uh, last yesterday uh, marked the end of the third straight week in which uh, New York City has seen double the number of shootings as compared to the same week last year. Uh, so this is starting to look more and more like a trend uh, with every day that goes by. So yeah, I, I think uh, Commissioner Shea had indicated that this might be sustained. This is like a, a sustained increase. What's driving this? Well, I think uh, there are a lot of things that are driving this. I mean, you know, New York City would be the least ideal place to kind of uh, do uh, a natural experiment to pinpoint this on a, on a particular uh policy shift. Um, So I I think it's a combination. Um, We've had, obviously, uh, a sort of endless march toward, uh, you know, uh, criminal justice reform, almost for its own sake for the past few years now. Um, I think a lot of those things from bail reform and discovery reform, uh, you know, the Right to Know Act, uh, reductions in, uh, you know, pedestrian stops within the NYPD, just a whole combination of factors. You've had, you know, uh, the, the DA in Brooklyn sort of refusing to bring charges for various offenses. Same thing in Manhattan, um, more diversions. Uh, you, you've had kind of all these forces kind of coming together um, at a time in which with this global pandemic, you'd be expecting violent crime to go down, right? I mean, uh, you, you'd have fewer people on the streets, fewer opportunities for victimization, yet we've seen the opposite of that. I think a lot of people uh, have kind of looked at the shooting numbers, the homicide numbers, and have been surprised. Um, and then, of course, you know, on top of all that, you've got uh, the sort of fallout from the George Floyd protests. And, and this is not unique to New York, um, but indeed, it's, it's, it's something we're seeing around the country in major cities, whether it's Atlanta or Chicago or Baltimore, St. Louis, Louisville. Um, and, uh, you know, what we see is, is a lot of outrage. We've seen a kind of decrease in the legitimacy of police in the eyes of a lot of people living in high crime communities. And I think that's emboldened the criminal class at the same time that it has kind of put real fear into the hearts of police officers who, um, you know, truly and deeply worry about being the kind of next viral sensation and, you know, worry about the new uh, legal and financial risks that they face every time they get out of their, out of their car uh, to engage in an enforcement interaction. So I've heard this argument before that the police are shifting into a more reactive posture right. vis-a-vis crime instead of taking a proactive posture, because like you said, they're afraid of getting caught in the next viral moment. But, you know, I've heard some advocates for criminal justice reform saying, hey, that's too bad. This is your job. 
go out and do your job. So what do you say to that? Yeah, well, I say uh, to that is that, you know, they're sending uh, mixed signals to say the least, right? I mean, these are the same people who decry the same kind of proactivity that we know um, is associated with, uh, with decreasing crime. And so what it sounds to me, uh, like is, is that these activist politicians want to reap the benefits of proactive policing. That is to say, they want to be able to continue to point to low crime numbers in their jurisdictions, uh, while at the same time, uh, being seen as kind of, you know, on the quote, right side of history when it comes to these reform discussions. Um, and, and so it's a bit of hypocrisy at play, I think. Um, you know, some, some criminal justice reformers have kind of used uh, these slowdowns uh, in police activity, uh, you know, uh, to kind of make the argument that, you know, uh, police are essentially uh, embodying their hostility to the communities that they are supposed to serve um, and that they're, they're sort of taking their ball and going home. And of course, that's not what we're seeing. What we're seeing is actual fear, right? I think... Uh, you know, would be interesting to for for people to to read some of the most recent research from Harvard economist Roland Fryer, um, who did a study on kind of the effect of viral incidents on on crime in various cities, and and especially when those viral incidents are sort of coupled with these pattern and practice investigations. Um, as part of that study, he did some focus groups. Uh, and in those focus groups, he consistently had police officers express fear of being, quote, the next viral sensation. And so um, I think it's real fear that's driving police into a more reactive posture. I think it's a real sense of uncertainty as to exactly how the public uh, wants them to deal with uh, violent suspects. Um, and I, I think there's a lack of appreciation within these communities uh for how difficult the job of policing is. Hold on, because criminal justice reform happened months ago already, and we didn't see a spike in shootings. And the new anti-chokehold law hasn't even been signed into effect yet, and we have seen a spike in shootings. So I don't get where the, I mean, some advocates have said, you can't draw a cause and effect relationship here because they don't exactly coincide. Well, these things never exactly coincide, right? And, you know, again, uh, you know, uh, they're right to uh, to say that causation is not the same thing as uh, correlation. Um, but it's not true to say uh, that crime was essentially flat before uh, all this started happening, right? At the front end of, of this year, we, we saw in the first two months uh, of 2020, uh, New York City crime shootings in particular, uh, go up pretty significantly. Um, and a, a lot of people pointed to bail reform as, as a significant driver of that, which, which you know, seems uh, reasonable to me, given uh, what the research says about uh, bail reform. Um, for example, there's a, a study from, from researchers at, at uh, Princeton and, and Harvard uh, that looked at uh, the effects of increasing uh, pretrial release. And what they found was that when you release uh, uh, a defendant pretrial, the likelihood of that defendant uh, committing a crime during the pretrial period uh, goes up 37%, which is not a, a small amount, right? Uh, and it's not just uh, bail reform, it's discovery reform. It's diversion programs. It's refusals to charge uh, certain types of uh, offenses. It's reductions in 
proactive uh, police activity like uh, pedestrian stops, right? We've seen the NYPD disband its anti-crime teams uh, recently. It's it's the sort of demoralizing effect that the riots have had on police. Um, the effect of COVID on the department, right? We've seen a lot, you know, earlier this year, we saw lots of police officers calling in sick um, with, with COVID symptoms. We had, I think, over a thousand the last time I checked uh, officers uh, testing positive uh, within just, you know, the first few weeks of the shutdown. Um, and and so, yeah, I, I think, again, there are a lot of forces at play that, that do, I think, logically point to uh playing a role, at least a, a, a small role in, in the sort of crime increase uh, that we're seeing now. I mean, you know, again, we're, we've decided to close Rikers Island and cap the capacity at 3,500 uh, inmates. Um, you know, that's that means reducing our jail population, which, you know, is has for many years now consisted primarily of, of really violent and difficult to manage uh, uh, detainees. And that's not, those aren't my words. That's, you know, from the mayor's management report in 2017, when they were explaining why the violence numbers at Rikers Island were so high. Um, but, you know, but let me interrupt you there for a moment. Most sure. of the people on Rikers Island are not guilty of any charges. Well, not yet, at least. Um, but they are certainly, uh, repeat offenders, uh, you know, about 75% uh, of, of the Rikers population has been there before. Um, so these are not your sort of first-time uh, offenders who happen to just get caught up uh, in, in some unfortunate uh, accident. Um, you know, for the most part, incarceration in New York City jails is reserved for pretty serious criminals. Um, and we see that uh, evidenced in, in multiple ways, both in the conviction rates that we see, uh, but also in, in terms of the violence numbers. Um, you know, again, at, at uh, in our city jails, we've we've cut the population uh, down from more than seventeen thousand five hundred in nineteen ninety eight uh, to you know it's got to be around five thousand now. Um, but in in twenty nineteen, we saw almost double the number of fight and assault infractions with a significantly smaller population than than was seen in nineteen ninety eight. Uh, when you had almost 10,000 more inmates. And so, uh, you know, the, again, the city's own explanation has been that one of the reasons the violence has been so hard to just sort of get under control is because the remaining uh, population of inmates is is so violent, has such a troubling criminal history. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, again, I think that's just one example, though, of a, a, this, this kind of, you know, blind march uh, toward more and more reform, um, which raises the question of, you know, whether criminal justice reformers are ever going to feel like they've had enough, like it's time to take a break and sort of see how things work out. Um, early indications are that, uh, that these reforms haven't exactly been very benign. Well, to what extent has the drop in the number of people in Rikers and the drop in crime in New York City over the last 20 or 30 years to what extent is that attributable to the work of violence interrupters, uh, <laughs> community groups, these are sometimes ex-gang members, who proactively go out without guns to diffuse tension on the streets and limit violence? Uh, some people are saying that this is the new. This should be the model for policing. Yeah, well, I think the the data on this is uh, is pretty light. Um, I don't see a whole lot of support for that theory in the in the uh, literature. 
Um, look, I mean, you know, there's certainly a possibility that that some of these violent interrupters can actually interrupt violence in at least some subset of instances. But the idea that the kind of uh, sort of depraved soul that would pull uh, a trigger in cold blood is a, a, amenable to reason <laughs> um, is, I think, uh, a bit far-fetched. Um, you know, there, there's certainly uh, plenty of, of, of reasons uh, to make a rational choice not to commit violent crime. Uh, and the idea that it's only these violent interrupters that, that hold that key, I think, is, is frankly a little silly. So um, everyone in New York uh, was kind of horrified by the, uh, the murder of Brandon Hendricks last week. Uh, this was a 17-year-old boy who just graduated from high school. He was preparing to go to St. John's on a basketball scholarship, um, and he was killed. I guess they just arrested the uh, his murderer, or his alleged murderer, who uh, it, it, it sounds, I'm not sure if he'd been arrested for this other crime, but he had strangled his uncle a few weeks ago. Um, I guess this sort of supports your thesis that a lot of these criminals, these violent people, are known to the police. So oh, yeah. can you draw any, you know, implications out of this? Well, yeah, I mean, look, you know, most of the time when we hear about one of these really terrible cases and the perpetrators found and, you know, the New York City Police Department does about as good a job as any other department in, in actually clearing these kinds of crimes, um, you know, it's very rarely a surprise uh, to the people um, who learned the identity of the alleged killer, which is to say that almost always uh, the person uh, charged with these crimes is a career criminal with, you know, a dozen arrests or so and, you know, multiple convictions. Um, what this means is that, you know, a high number of arrests indicate that police are actually doing a pretty good job of focusing their limited resources on exactly the right kinds of people. Um, and, what it also tells us is that the system may actually be playing a role in creating some of these dangers by failing to hold these individuals for longer periods of time. We see this, you know, with with crimes committed by people who are out uh, after being released on their own recognizance pre-trial or given probation uh, after a conviction or paroled early. Um, and I would remind listeners that the Brooklyn DA's office has adopted a default position of supporting uh, bids for parole uh, unless there exists uh, you know, some exigent circumstance uh, for why they shouldn't. And, and that's a sort of reversal of, of what the policy has been. Um, and so, you know, these are all, I think, intuitively understood by people to be sort of self-inflicted wounds, which is to say that they're intuitively understood to be avoidable crimes. Um, and unfortunately, uh, the, the sort of the, the headwinds are blowing in a direction that undermine the political will to do something about that problem. Well, when you talk about avoidable crimes, that reminds me, you know, up through last week, we had a huge debate in New York City. And this is really reflecting a national concern about uh, defunding the police. And there were a lot of people demanding that the New York City uh, budget for the police be slashed substantially. A lot of people are very upset that that it didn't that what they wound up doing didn't go far enough. And I guess the argument is that if you were to defund the police, like seriously take away their budget, 
and pour all of that money into education, social services, counseling, better career counseling, better, you know, violence interruption, all of these social service programs, then you'd address the root cause of crime, and then you'd really avoid crime. Do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, this this root cause argument, uh, you know, has been around for a really long time. And, um, you know, uh, again, there's certainly correlation between things like poverty uh, and violent crime, but it, I just don't see the data supporting the idea that, uh, one, we know how to sort of cure poverty uh, and get that down to zero, um, and two, that doing that uh, would actually uh, make a, a significant dent in the sort of violent crime that is plaguing a lot of America's inner cities. Um, I mean, you know, no one's ever really made the sort of root cause argument for New York's uh, enormous and, 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 and sustained crime decline. Um, and you know, I, I think that's that's telling in and of itself. Um, you know, the <laughs> if you look at, uh, at at New York City between 1990 and and, and today, right? You, you homicides went from about 2,200 plus to below 300. Um, or I guess last year we we were up above 300. Um, you know, the what the root cause argument suggests is that you know we should expect to see have seen some serious decline in poverty. Uh, over that time. Uh, but of course, New York City's 2016 poverty rate was uh, 19.5%, which is actually slightly higher than it was in 1989, which is 18.8%, uh, when of course violence uh, was an exponentially larger problem um, in the city. And you, and you see this you know, around the country. I mean, Philadelphia has been experiencing uh, a spike in violent crime in recent years, um, but their violent uh, their their poverty rate has remained essentially steady since two thousand six. It's more than a decade. Um, it was actually higher in two thousand eleven uh, at twenty eight point four percent when there were fewer murders than there were uh, in two thousand eighteen um, when the poverty rate was lower. So you know this idea that there's this just clear correlation. Uh, between poverty and crime, I, I don't think really holds up. I would point people to the work of Barry Latzer, who's articulated this in the form of what he calls crime adversity mismatch, um, which again just shows that there's actually a lot of variation uh, between culturally identifiable groups, even when you control uh, for things like socioeconomic circumstances. And you know, there's some evidence out of Chicago too, in between 2014 and 2016, the black male uh, unemployment rate um, decreased significantly uh, during that time uh, per pupil spending uh, in the Chicago public school system went up significantly. Yet during that time, you had a nearly 60% increase in, in homicides. And so you know, what I think people need to understand is that when we're talking about a very serious violent crime problem, we're talking about a very tiny portion uh, of our population that is, is not uh, particularly responsive uh, to these kinds of, uh, of sort of circumstances. And the last point I'll make on this is that sort of implicit in the root cause argument is this idea that, that criminals are sort of weighing their options and choosing crime because they don't have a sort of... Uh, better alternative by which uh, to sort of make money. And what this ignores is that shooting someone in the face doesn't really make you any money. 
um, beating someone after you've robbed them doesn't make you any money. I just saw a video out of Harlem where a, a, a young man hit a woman who wasn't even paying attention in the face as hard as he could with a skateboard because she, quote, disrespected him. That's not a, a matter of socioeconomic circumstance. Uh, but again, it, you know, implicit in their argument is this idea that we can sort of change the calculus of criminals by giving them more options. But that also would imply the logical extension of that would be that we could change the calculus of criminals by also uh, making the option of crime less attractive by increasing penalties. Oh, that, that is a good point. I, I, I did read about a report recently, and I, I wish I had the details to hand. Maybe you read about it too. You know, there's this argument that having drugs be illegal drives violence because there's an illegal drug trade and hence there's a lot of competition and shootings and so forth emerge from that. But someone looked at all of these drug-related shootings or shootings and determined that very few of them were actually related to the business of drugs, right? illegal drugs. And it was generally a question of, um, of respect. Right. That's what we see in a lot of, of high crime cities. Um, the vast uh, bulk of the violent crime is driven not by the sort of drug trade, not by people beefing over turf. Um, but it's usually just by driven by personal slights, perceived disrespect. Um, you know, a lot of it has actually started over social media. Police uh, in various cities have told me uh, different versions of the following story, which is that, you know, a lot of their shootings kind of originate with a, quote, disrespectful post on Instagram or something like that, where you'll have a, you know, local gang member, you know, take a picture in, in the opposing gang's territory or with the an opposing gang member's girlfriend and you know, with, along with some derogatory commentary and that that will sort of make the rounds and then spur this this kind of retaliation uh that uh, of course feeds the cycle of, of of you know revenge killings and um you know it's really kind of something to see but the, there, there is a very big difference uh between how drug-related crime can be categorized right there there's systemic drug-related crime, which is to say that these are crimes related to the trade itself. And then there's pharmacological uh, crime. And I think what you'd find is that uh, a much bigger chunk than people think of, of drug-related crime is actually pharmacological and not systemic. Meaning that someone's on drugs? When right. They right. They're sort of induced in you know, to commit the crime because they're in an altered state of consciousness. Uh, we see this a lot with drugs like PCP and cocaine. Um Math. Uh, I will point out that Alex Berenson, the former New York Times science writer who wrote a book about marijuana, he suggests that the one consistent factor among all violent criminals is that they all smoke marijuana. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of overlap uh, between uh, between so-called nonviolent drug offenders and really violent offenders. Right. The reality is, of course, criminals don't specialize, and one of the reasons why we see sort of uh, drug enforcement concentrated uh, in high crime areas to the degree that we see it is simply because police understand that they can actually gain some real tangible benefits in the form of violent crime reductions by enforcing drug crimes uh, in high crime areas because there's that overlap uh, between the sort of offenders who engage in, in lower level drug use and, and dealing and in, in, in more serious violent crime. And, you know, 
while there are really strong sort of moral philosophical arguments to be made uh, in favor of ending the drug war, some of which I'm, I'm, I'm personally sympathetic to, I think that uh, people really need to grapple with uh, the reality that, that crime would likely go up uh, a pretty significant degree if we weren't able to sort of gain uh, the, the, the small benefits that we do gain um, in, in the form of crime reduction through drug enforcement. Fascinating stuff. Uh, thank you, Ralph, for joining us on 10 Blocks today. Thank you so much for having me. Always a pleasure. And um, if you like our podcast and you'd like to hear more, please leave reviews and ratings on iTunes and tune in next week. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.